Daniel chapter number 5, and we'll begin in verse number 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now, a number of things going on here that's certainly wickedness. Uh, first of all, they're praising uh, false man-made gods, gods of wood, gods of stone, gods of silver and gold and so forth. But another thing that's going on here is they're taking and they're drinking wine, and as I've said many, many times, and it bears repeating, especially in the culture that we live in today, is that when you see the word wine, it doesn't always mean alcohol. Sometimes it means grape juice, and the context in the Word of God makes that clear. Before you make any stupid statements or have stupid beliefs about alcohol and drinking it, you say, well, that's kind of dry. Yeah, for a Christian to believe that it's okay to socially drink alcohol, it's stupid. Because we've got the Word of God here. And really, you know, I'm not meaning to be derogative, but you need to hear it. Because literally, Christianity today is filled with stupidity. And and it's not just ignorance, because we've got the Bible. People are stupid because they don't search the Bible for the answers. They Google it, or they go to some liberal minister, and they get their opinion and say, well, that's good enough for me, because that's what I wanted to hear to begin with. That's stupidity. I don't care how you slice it and dice it. In this pagan party that's going on right here, I believe with that the context is clear that this is alcoholic wine that is being put in the vessels from the house of God. And I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the Bible teaches that as believers that we are vessels. We are temples of the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that we could make the practical application that God doesn't want the devil's drink in his vessels. And so Belshazzar is taking, and I mean, he's taking his worldly party to the next level. Let's continue in verse number five. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed. Party's over, king. It's not fun anymore. God showed up. And you know what? A lot of the nonsense that goes on among supposed God's children today, if God ever showed up, it would certainly change the way that people feel. You know, just like you know, Adam and Eve felt like that their fig leaves were doing a pretty good job. Until they heard the sound of the, the, and the presence of God there in the garden. And then they realized we're still naked. 
There's a lot of nonsense that goes on in churches today that if the presence of God was there, people would not feel near as good about their worldliness and their wickedness as they do today. And so the handwriting on the wall. Now, for sake of time, we're going to skip down to verse number 17. Belshazzar is trying to get all of the magicians and astrologers to tell him what this writing means. And ultimately, he ended up going to Daniel. And this is nothing new for Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing with his uh, image and dreams and so forth. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty, and glory, and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. This is the power that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven Till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointeth over it whomever he will. For seven years, God took away Nebuchadnezzar's mind and gave him the mind of a beast. And he wallowed around out there in the field and his fingernails grew long and dirty and the hair grew upon him. He literally, in his own heart and mind, had the, the mind of a beast. Uh, the condition in psychology is called lycanthropy. And it's not a common thing, but it does happen from time to time. And so God took away his mind, and after that seven times passed over King Nebuchadnezzar, he came to himself. God gave him back his mind, and Nebuchadnezzar realized um, that God is the one that rules in heaven. That I'm nothing without God. Brothers and sisters, anytime that you start thinking highly of yourself at all, proud of yourself because of your abilities or your character or start looking down upon other people, and I'm not saying that there isn't difference among men and women. There are men and women that are better than other men and women. But never forget that whatever you are that's of any value whatsoever, it came from God. You didn't figure it out on your own. God blessed you with either good parents or good teachers or good pastors or just gave you some good sense and wisdom, and it all comes from God. Nebuchadnezzar had to go through a pretty tough seven-year stretch of life in order to figure that out. Verse 22, And thou his son, O Belshazzar, Hast not humbled thine heart, watch this, though thou knewest all this, but hast lift up thyself against the Lord of heaven, 
And they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them. Thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. This is the writing that was written. Mine, mine, tekel, upharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mine, God hath numbered thy kingdom. All right, God numbered his kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed. I want you to remember the word numbered. I want you to remember the word weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. I want to speak this morning on the subject of the metrology of God. I'll explain what metrology is here in just a moment. First, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessings. Lord, thank you for this amazing story from the Bible. Lord, we hear about it in Sunday school, and Lord, uh, it, it is an amazing story how that you showed up and how that in one hour you judged a pagan king that crossed the line. He went too far. Lord, you had enough of him. And Lord, I pray that the things that we say here today would uh, would help us to not only understand and acknowledge who you are, but God, that we would recognize that we need to change our ways. We need to be mindful of the God of heaven. Lord, we live in a day and age where it seems like seems like you're so distant, so silent, to the point that if we're not careful, we'll think that you're not even around and that you don't care. We know from the scripture, we know from experience that any feeling of faithlessness and unbelief is certainly a false feeling. It comes from the devil himself. And I pray, God, that we would ignore our feelings and that we would trust the living Word of God that tells us the truth about you. Help us now, we pray. If anyone here today is not saved, may this message speak to their heart. And God, help them realize the urgency of their eternal destination. And may they get saved before it's eternally too late. Perhaps there be a believer who has wandered far away from you, thinking that everything's okay. I pray, God, that they would recognize this morning that it's not okay and it will not be okay. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Metrology. Not everyone's familiar with this particular science, but it is the science of measurements. The ability to measure alone is insufficient. Standardization is crucial for measurements to be meaningful. I remember when America attempted to convert to the metric system, and that didn't go so well. We had a, a mixture of metrics and standard uh, SAE measurement. What's it called? English? Normal measurements? Right kind? I don't know. 
But 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 now we do have. When you look at a package, you see usually both standard measurements as well as metric. It's a combination. You know, an American-made car used to be you could go and get a seven sixteenth wrench or socket, and you'd know, hey, it's going to fit. But now it's like, is it ten millimeter or is it seven sixteenth? You never know. And so it's usually a mixture of both. And so a measurement is insufficient without a standardization. It has to have a standardization to be meaningful. The first record of a permanent standard was in 2900 BC when the royal Egyptian cubit was carved from black granite. The cubit was decreed to be the length of that that particular pharaoh's forearm plus the width of his hand. And the replica standards were given to the builders. The success of a standardized length for the building of the pyramids is indicated by the lengths of their bases differing by no more than 0.05%. That's pretty accurate measurements for 2900 BC where they didn't have dial calipers and uh, electronic devices and lasers and so forth, uh, that's pretty accurate. But we see throughout the Bible that God is into measurements. Here, Belshazzar was weighed in the balances and he was found wanting. He was measured by God and uh, and God numbered him. That also is a measurement. We're going to take a little tour from the Bible here this morning and see some various areas in which God is interested in measurement. The first one that we want to look at here this morning is that God measures the wickedness of nations. In Genesis 15, verse number 16, it says, But in the fourth generation, speaking of Israel being held in captivity in Egypt, the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, if you think about this, folks, the Amorites, that's the Canaanites who lived in what we call Palestine today. They were some very wicked nations. They were so wicked that they actually sacrificed their children in fire. They'd throw their children in fire and sacrifice to a false make-believe God called Molech. That's pretty wickedness. God said, when you do go into the land, he said, I want you to destroy their pictures. I guarantee you, these Canaanites were violent and wicked and pagan, and they were perverse sexually perverse in ways that we can't, I mean, you don't even want to imagine. They were vile and filthy. And that was when God sent Joseph and Israel back down into Egypt to sojourn for 400 years. So 400 years transpired. They were already a wicked people, but God says their iniquity is not yet full. When I think about how wicked America has become, I just can't help but feel that, wow, God is so merciful, kind, and long-suffering, we cannot even imagine how good our God is. He is so slandered and abused by people's hearts and minds. Well, something bad happened to me. God, how could you allow that to happen? 
You know, it's funny. People don't get all worked up when God allows something to happen to somebody that they don't even know. You know, there's all kinds of wicked things that happen. And the whole time God tried to stop it from happening, when man wouldn't listen and it happened, God continues to plead. He, he sets up some laws and parameters to keep us from hurting ourselves. We continually cross those lines. We continue to do foolish, wicked things. And then when bad things happen, oh, it's all God's fault. Then God turned around and he said, you know, man needs some help. They, they, they need redemption. Somebody's got to pay the penalty for their sin. And you know what God did? God did it himself. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. God's done nothing but good to the human race. And yet he gets blamed and slandered by the majority of people every day. But he measures the wickedness of nations. Take a look with me at Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. And in verse number 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. God's going to give you a lapful, if you will. He's going to give you a gutful eventually. Verse 7, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore, God says, will I measure their former work into their bosom? Paraphrase, God saying, I've got a gut full of you. I'm going to give you a gut full. I'm going to take what you've been feeding me and I'm going to feed it back to you. And that is not a pretty sight. In Jeremiah 30, verse number 11, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. This is what God thinks of the nation of Israel. He says, I'm not going to leave you altogether unpunished. Uh, you're going to pay some consequences for your idolatry and your rejection of me. But God says, I'm going to treat you different than all of the other nations of the world in that I'm not going to make a full end of you. I'm going to be patient with you until you get it right. And by the way, the tribulation period, which I believe is just around the corner, Jacob's trouble, God's going to use the calamity on planet earth in order to get Israel's attention and turn them back to God Almighty. They're going to recognize that Jesus was their Messiah and they blew it. We see a difference between Israel and all the other nations. You know, God will use the nations of this world to chastise Israel and then turn around and punish that nation for how they treated Israel. You say that doesn't make sense. Makes perfect sense from God's perspective. You know, because we're all, I guess the, the point is, is that God measures everyone's wickedness, every nation's wickedness. And while it may seem that 
we're getting away with it and that God's putting up with it, uh, the measurement is soon going to be full. And when it starts running over, that wrath starts running over and it rains upon the wicked. So God measures the wickedness of nations. The next thing is, I just want to add to this, that God's wrath is indeed measured. In Isaiah 30, verse number 27, the Bible says, Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and his tongue as a devouring fire. The burden is heavy. He's measuring the weight of that burden. His lips are full. He's measuring the amount of indignation and when his wrath reaches, you know, on nowadays everything's computerized and digital in our cars, but many of you remember the day when you had gauges and those gauges always meant something. Nowadays, it's just you, you get, we used to call them idiot lights. When the light comes on and says you got a problem, they have improved, I have to say. But back when they first came out, the idiot light, when it would come on your dash and tell you you have a problem, it's too late to fix it. You know, the gauge would have told you that, hey, I got a problem that's starting to happen. I better get this checked into. But when the gauge went on, it, it's like, uh, your engine has blown. <laughs> oh, like I couldn't see that without this light. <laughs> I couldn't figure that one out. Thank you, computer. But but there used to be gauges, and the gauge, when it would get over to a certain toleration, there would be on the numbers a little red section. We'd call it the gauge is redlining. It hasn't reached critical yet, but it is getting really, really close. Wouldn't you agree with me that God's gauge of wrath on our nation today is certainly redlining? And if we don't pay attention and get it back where it's supposed to be, and it continues, then something's going to blow. And that wrath is coming. Take a look with me at Revelation chapter number 14. Revelation 14. And in verse number 9, Revelation 14, verse number 9, it says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Once again, God's wrath, the behavior of man, is filling that cup with his indignation and with his wrath. And eventually when that cup gets full, he's going to pour it out upon planet earth. And that tribulation, these people who take the mark of the beast, it's over. It's done. It's sealed. It's no, oh, that was a mistake. I'm sorry. I mean, the average person today thinks, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do, and then I'm just going to apologize, and I'll get away with it. Well, listen, whether that works for you or not, in the tribulation period, there's not going to be any apology, any repentance. Your 
doom is sealed. And I say your, I hope I'm not speaking to anyone here today that's going to find themselves in that situation. If you're saved, you don't have to worry about this because God has delivered us from the wrath to come. We're going to be caught up out of here when the trumpet sounds. But this whole world, and you know, we were talking about it just the other day. What is this mark going to be? You know, people thought, well, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I've heard that. Well, they're going to inject, they're injecting a chip in your body. I don't know exactly what this mark is going to look like. I know for years, everybody just knew that the mark of the beast was going to look like a barcode that like you scan your groceries and it's going to be on your forehead. All I know is the Bible says it's going to be a mark in your hand or in your forehead. And it's going to represent this beast. Uh, personally, I don't believe that it's something that someone's going to take by accident and not know what they're doing. I think they're going to know that this mark is associated with this man. And they're going to be deceived. And they're going to do it because everybody's doing it. And because you're not going to buy or sell without it. I was talking to Brother Ben the other night. Very well may have something to do with the medical profession and with health. Because, you know, you study the book of Job. What did Satan attack? He attacked Job's health. And so there's probably all that's going on in the world today. The Antichrist is probably going to have the answer to all of the health crisis, all the financial crisis. But the bottom line, you're going to have to get his mark in order to buy and sell and to live a normal life. If you reject it, then you're going to have a tough road to hoe in order to make it through the tribulation period and not end up in the lake of fire. I've heard people say this, well, I'm not ready to get saved. I'm going to live my life my way. And if I miss the rapture, well, I'm just not going to take the mark of the beast. Wow, you are insane. You, you could simply repent and trust Jesus as your Savior today and not have to go through any of that. And you're so tough that you're going to live your life. And when the, when it gets really, really tough, then you're going to make the right decisions. No way, no how. No way. If you won't trust Christ today by simple faith, you're not going to, you're not going to have a, a, a chance, in my opinion, in the tribulation period. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be a horrible, horrible situation. God certainly measures those things. And you know what? Let me just throw this in for free. You know, what's going on in the last year and a half is conditioning people to to do what everybody else is saying that you need to do, or you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. I'm not saying that COVID is the mark of the beast. I'm just simply saying that I believe beyond any shadow of a doubt that Satan is behind all of this insanity that we've been going through the last year and a half, and he's just using it to program people's minds. How could people accept the mark of the beast when for how nearly 2,000 years we've had the Word of God telling us explicitly in all detail that this is going to happen. 
You know, most people would think, well, when that happens, people are going to say, oh, the Bible was true. I better reject it. No, by the time we get to that point, Satan's going to have people's minds so reprogrammed that they'll look at the scripture and go, ha, who cares? I want the mark. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Oh, what I was going to throw in for free. Have you noticed how in recent times, how our culture has made it totally common for people to receive marks on their body? I'm not getting on some hobby horse. And if you if you got a tat, I'm not preaching against you. I'm just simply saying, don't you find it ironic that it's so common in the last days here where people are preconditioned that it's no big deal. Hey, when I was, when I was a kid, you know, we, we, my dad's general, my dad had a tattoo on his arm. He got it when he was at uh, Navy, uh, went through Navy basic training. And so, you know, I always was intrigued by that when I was a kid. And you would see some of the older generation, they'd have a tattoo on their arm or, you know, and, and that was like, whoa, that's, that, that was a big deal back then. It's no big deal today, is it? And don't you find it ironic that this cultural phenomenon, it happened so rapidly, say, in the last 20 years? So I said I'd throw that in for free. Certainly something to think about. If you don't like what I have to say, then that's okay. I, I love you anyways. My next point here on our tour about God's measurements in the Bible, and that is this, insincerity is measured by God. That's an interesting concept here, but in Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 11, God says this. He said, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Hey, what is the Lord saying? Israel, God's people, were backslidden. They were, they were living pagan, ungodly lives, but you know what they would still do? They would still bring their sacrifices to the temple. And they had this attitude, and you know, Roman Catholicism has a strong element of this. If you are have ever been part of the Roman Catholic faith, there's this element that, hey, I can go commit the sin. If I commit adultery, or if I steal, or if I do this, then all I have to do is just go to the priest and get in the booth and confess it. He'll give me some penance and some Hail Marys and some different things that I have to do. And I'm willing to pay that price and because I want to do what I want to do and I've got a way to get over it. And that's a misrepresentation of God. Uh, Back in the dark ages, before the Reformation, they had these, they were selling things called indulgences. And an indulgence, sometimes they would put it on a coin or on a piece of paper, and it was almost like a token that you could buy the sin of adultery before you commit it. You go pay a certain money, and they would sell you an indulgence, and then you can go commit adultery, and it's free. You don't go to hell for it. And that's the same mentality that's prevalent 
among the children of Israel in Isaiah's day. And God's saying, I'm sick of your sacrifices. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're phony. You think that you are you are pleasing me with your sacrifices when you just continue to live your wicked lives? Listen, we got it going on in Baptist churches today. I'm not changing the way that I live, preacher, but I'll come to church. You know, I'll come pay my penance by sitting through one of your sermons. And I've suffered enough. Like, I gave God an hour of my time on Sunday. We're even now, right, God? Now I can go back to my life Sunday evening or Monday and just live however I want, and that's enough. And God's like, I'm sick of that. You, you think that does mean it? God says, look, I'm not interested in you checking me off of your list and satisfying your conscience. God says, I want your heart. I want you, I want you to love me, and I want you, I want you to want the things that I want for your life. Well, you know, I go to church, hey, I even put some money in the offering. God's like, what do I need your money for? Do we think that God's broke? Do we think that we're doing God any favors? And God certainly, he says, I'm full of your burnt offerings. He's measuring that hypocrisy. Proverbs 11, verse number 1. And, and I believe there's probably a dual meaning of Proverbs 11, 1. But the Bible says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, we know a balance is a scale for measuring. And oftentimes we use that verse saying a false balance is an abomination to God. And sometimes we're, we're talking about, you know, your life is out of balance. You got, you got too much going on here and you, you, you need to balance that life. You're too extreme in this area. But literally the meaning of this verse is not talking about you, uh, you know, having that balance in your life. It's talking about a false balance, meaning something that weighs gives you a measurement that's not real, that's not accurate. You know, back in Bible days, if the store clerk wanted to rip you off, he would have a false balance. He'd put his balance out there, and you'd put your money on one side, and he'd put his weights and measurements on this side, and he would say, okay, that's three shekels, and really you're... It only cost two, but the balance was inaccurate in his favor. Hypocrisy. Not real. Not, not trustworthy. The other day I was remembering someone from past ministry. And, and, and look, I can, I could certainly remember many like this, but I was remembering a particular person who turned out to be a phony. Now, I've been duped more than once. But I've also, uh, from time to time, had people pegged that had everyone else duped. And I began to take inventory of those type of people. I just got to thinking, it's like people who were phony and you time panda. Sometimes it may be 10 years later that you find out that hey they weren't they weren't real they were just trying to 
Maybe they found their little place of acceptance or glory, little kingdom or whatever. Maybe they were doing penance. But with no exceptions, as I measured or took inventory of all of those types of people, time was always revealing and heartache and demise was always inevitable. What am I trying to say, folks? Be real. You will never get right until you get real. If you're trying to paint a picture of yourself one way to one person, another way to another person, you are not real. And listen, what happens is a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, and you'll never ever get on track with God until you get real. And that insincerity is measured by God. God may put up with you for a while, but eventually he's going to get full of those burnt offerings and sacrifices and say, look, I've had a gut full. I am tired of this. Next, I'd like to say this. God's scales are accurate. Job said in Job 31, verse number 6, Let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. Now, the reason that Job said this is because he really in his heart was thinking that God's scales are not accurate, that God's not being fair and just. He's not weighing my life and my righteousness and he it's not counting for what it ought to count for in God's eyes. Have you ever had that time where that morning where you were just absolutely sure that the bathroom scales were malfunctioning? It's like there's no way that I gained five pounds from yesterday morning. I've had times where... My wife said, those scales, they're they're messed up. I've changed the battery. (laughs) Sorry, it ain't the scales. (laughs) Now, I know you're not going to gain five pounds of fat overnight, but I, I would guess it's probably a hydration issue, right? But sometimes it's just like, wow, that something's wrong with that scale. Sometimes we feel that way. In Proverbs 16, verse number 11, a just weight and balance are the Lord's. All the weights of the bag are His work. Isaiah 26, verse number 7, the way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright dost weigh the path of the just. You know, let me say this. God expects more out of His people than He does lost people. And yet, He is more merciful toward us when we don't measure up. He's a great God, folks. But He does expect more out of you than He does lost people. In fact, you might find that God expects more out of you than He does you, and more out of you than He does you. You ever, you ever notice that? I, I know sometimes as a minister, there's sometimes it's like I'm looking at other people and it's like, God, how come they get away with that? God says, don't worry about them, son. 
You just do what I tell you to do. My next point, God measures the suffering of his children. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Listen, what you're going through in this life, it may seem really, really tough at times, but when we compare it to the reward that's on the other side, it's just a light affliction. You know, Paul wrote that. And it, I don't have time to go into all of it, but Paul knew about afflictions. He knew about stuff that you and I, we, I mean, he went through stuff probably every week that would add up to the amount of afflictions that we went through in a lifetime. And yet he says, it's just a light affliction. It's going to be worth it all when we see Christ. Second Corinthians 12, verse number seven, he said, lest I should be exalted above measure, Through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. God put Paul through some special suffering because God had a special task for the Apostle Paul. Some people think it says in the Bible, are you ready for this? Quote, God won't put any more on you than you're able to bear. Says that in the Bible, doesn't it? Some of you are like, yeah, it does, doesn't it, preacher? No. It's like many sentimental cliches. It doesn't say that in the Bible. I'm not saying that there's not truth in that sentimental cliche, and I'm not against all sentimental cliches. But sometimes they get repeated so often that just people assume that's in the Bible. Well, after all, The book says cleanliness is next to godliness, right? I'm all for cleanliness. I'm all for the concept that God's not going to put more on you than you can bear. Those are great cliches. Just don't say they're in the Bible, okay? Because they're not. It ain't true. But you know, the Apostle Paul, God is measuring this suffering and God's measuring more to Paul than he has me. And I pray, I'm thankful for that more than you, anybody here. But in 2 Corinthians 12, verse number nine, he said unto me, watch this, my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now that is in the book. And so when you're going through suffering, This you can count on as true, that God says, my grace is sufficient for thee. He went on to say that my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul was able to say, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My next point, God measures gifts and responsibilities. And I'm almost done. I'm going going to go quickly here. Gifts and responsibilities. In Ephesians 4, verse number 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. If you were to read Ephesians 4, you'd find that God gifts some men as pastors, as teachers, as evangelists, and I believe in modern Christianity, God calls missionaries, and God calls people to be deacons, and God calls people to be Sunday school teachers, and God calls people to be janitors, and all the different ministries and the gifts of the body of Christ, God gives a different amount and a different type to each and every one. That's how He measures 
out these gifts. We should never compare what he has given to us to what he has given to others. Never, ever do that. Listen, what God gave you is special to you. It's not a caste system. It's not a superior. Hey, it's not. Don't get this alpha dog syndrome. Uh, There, listen, literally independent Baptist churches are filled with pastors behind the pulpit that should have never been there to begin with. But they just thought that, well, maybe that ambition that I want to be at the top. Look, there is no top. I hate to tell you that, but there's not. You say, well, you're up there on the platform and you get to tell everybody what you think. You know, if, if you got the real deal and it's a real burden rather than just human ego wanting attention or wanting to be heard, if you've got the real burden from God, I got news for you. If God didn't call you to do it, don't. It's not worth it. Value your gift as if it's the best and the most. Because I got news for you. Whatever God gave you to do for Him, it's far more than you ever deserved. God's got you scrubbing toilets at the house of God. You ought to scrub the... Wow, praise the Lord. I can remember. I can remember when I was in the bar vomiting in this in a toilet. And now I'm in the house of God and I get to scrub it. Woohoo! Thank you, Jesus! Because God's measurement is way different than ours. My next point, man's measurement affects God's measurement. Matthew 7, verse number 2, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Mark four twenty four, And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. Listen, when God says to his children, it's time for a spanking, bring me your rod. Well, listen, I would rather bring him a popsicle stick than a two-by-four, wouldn't you? When God says, it's time for me to pour you out some blessings, I'd rather bring him a wheelbarrow than a thimble. And the measurement that we use, how we treat other people, is the measurement in which God is going to use to treat us. My next point, the measurement of God's compassion, mercy, and truth. In Psalm 70, and listen, I I, I could have given you a lot of verses for this point, but I just picked out two. Psalm 78, verse 38, but he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. God being full of compassion. Psalm 86, 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and in truth. We... um, the first time that we moved from North Carolina to Idaho is after Lynn and I got married. Anna was just nine months old, and we rented this U-Haul that 
when it said it was empty, it actually had a quarter of a tank. And that got us, that got me in trouble one time. We ran out of, on the off ramp, you could see the gas station in the distance and I pushed it too far and we ran out of gas. That was not a pleasant thing. But you know what? Sometimes God's tank of compassion, it looks like it's empty. I'd rather have it I'd rather have God's tank toward my life look empty and be full than to look full and actually be empty. Thank God, no matter how you see God's tank, He is a God that is full of compassion and mercy and grace and long-suffering. And in conclusion, probably... The most important point for all of us to know is that God measures the value of His Son. In Zechariah 11, verse number 12, And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. This is prophetic of Jesus Christ being betrayed. Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. That was the value of the Sanhedrin. They looked at the life of Jesus. It's like, well, he's worth 30 pieces of silver. You know, I mean, it's not like throwing five bucks at him, but it really wasn't that much compared to who Jesus was. In 2019, a man who wished to remain anonymous took his dog Lucky for a walk somewhere. He wouldn't say exactly where, outside of the city of Bendigo, about two hours north of Melbourne, Australia. Brother Ben, you ever heard of that? All right, well, that's uh, that's because he doesn't want you to know where it is. Joining him were his two daughters, and it's a good thing they did. He said, I actually walked right past it, he later told the Bendigo advertiser, but my daughter pretty much kicked it as she was walking. She then goes, Dad, is this gold? He replied, I think it might be. Unable to find a jeweler, they brought the fist-sized chunk to a grocery store deli to weigh it, and it topped 20 ounces. Experts have since confirmed the nugget's authenticity. We've come on some tough times, the dad said, so it couldn't be better timing. He said the family discussed keeping their lucky find, but they ultimately decided to sell it. Its estimated value was $24,000. Little walk, he wasn't expecting to find anything, and they kicked a rock and looked at it, 24,000. That's a pretty interesting story, but nothing compared to the next story. I can't pronounce his name, he's from India. Jumrus Thayako was down on his luck. Not India, I'm sorry. The 55-year-old Thai fisherman, he's from Thailand, was only making about 400 um, in their currency, $13 a day, and had very little money to his name. Then one day in early 2019, Jumrus was walking on the beach and found a yellow lump of something in the sand. He thought that the waxy substance might be ambergris. 
Made in the belly of a whale, only a tiny amount of it is needed to make a fragrance last longer. That makes this floating gold highly desirable in the perfume industry. But because ambergris is so rare, Jumrus wasn't getting his hopes up. He took a few slivers of it to be tested, but the tests were inconclusive. Unsure what to do next, Jumrus stored the lump in his shed and got back to his life. Nearly a year passed. Jumrus needed to know the truth, so he contacted the provincial governor, who brought an expert to the fisherman's house. The result? The substance was determined to be at least 80% ambergris. Whale vomit. With an estimated value of $320,000. That's pretty amazing. The world just sees it as whale vomit. But it was a precious substance that helps put out a wonderful fragrance. I think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and He came to this world. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. He came, and He loved, and He lived, and He taught, and He performed miracles, and He fed. He did wonderful things that the Bible says that if everything was written, the world couldn't even contain all of the books. I mean, every day of those 33 and a half years, there was something wonderful and miraculous. And we have the Gospels that just give us a few highlights here and there. And yet, when it was all said and done, the value of him, at least to Judas and the Sanhedrin, was just 30 pieces of silver. The value of him to the Roman soldiers and to the Jews who cried out, crucify him. Listen, his value was nothing. In fact, his value was in the negative in their mind. And yet we read in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 8, where Paul said unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You cannot place a value on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one thing that cannot be measured because his worth and his value exceeds anything that we could even possibly comprehend. You know, a man's not going to get saved until he really realizes the value of what Jesus did on the cross. A man's not going to get saved until he really has an accurate assessment of the value of his life. We think we're pretty good and we're getting along, but the reality of it is, is we are weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the only thing that can give us value in our life is the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Jesus. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition, from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As believers, you say, preacher, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. You know, you're not going to truly live for Christ until you value him the way that you ought to value him. And I want to encourage all of us here this morning. Start valuing Christ. 
for what he's worth. Because he is worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for the value of Jesus Christ. I think about how we see life and the way that we measure things, and God, we're so unjust. Lord, our scales are so inaccurate and broken and malfunctioning. But God, you've given us your word, and it's true, it's perfect, it's pure. And you're a God who sometimes we think that things are not accurate, but God, you always you always come out as perfect and true and accurate and holy. Help us to value you and to value the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain seated, heads bowed, eyes closed. Time of prayer, time of searching our heart, examining our life. A time of measurement, if you will. God's measuring your life. God measures everything. His wrath is measured. His grace is measured. He's measuring your hypocrisy. He's measuring how you treat others. And certainly there's many, many more things that we could see from the scripture about the metrology of God. Would you do business with God today? The altar's open. You're invited to come. Whether you come or stay, just please consider all that Christ has done for you. May he measure up in all of our hearts and minds because he certainly does measure up.